Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We have three verses this morning. But I will tell you with even those three verses, uh, it's difficult to fit it into to one message. And it's also difficult to to deal with the topic that we have before us today in the, in the Word of God um, emotionally. Once again, we're going to invite Solomon to teach us about life in a, in a Genesis 3 world. The purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to make us wise, but it has a very unconventional way of doing that, teaching that wisdom, doesn't it? it it's... It's, it's, a, it's not an approach that, that any of the other wisdom books, books take. It, after coaxing us to the overhang, Solomon asks us to, to look over the edge into the waters of the curse. And, and in chapter 1, he tells us all that awaits us below are the rocks of vanity. In chapter 2, he, he takes us by the hand and pulls us off the cliff, and it's a it's a very unnerving fall, and it feels hopeless as we, we sink into the, into the depths of the water. Down he takes us into the empty waters of, of pleasures and personal pursuit and work and philosophy and wisdom. And just when your lungs are, are heaving for lack of air, he reaches us the aerator at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, the the atmosphere that we ultimately will breathe is at the very end of Ecclesiastes 12. What awaits us, the new world, when God removes the curse. But, but Solomon sticks an aerator in our mouth and, and reveals to us, the, you feel this way about the cursed world because mankind cannot find satisfaction in a world apart from God. God has actually removed that ability to find it apart from Him, and that's part of the curse. And not only that, Solomon tells us, but God has created us with eternity in our hearts, bringing, bringing a longing for something more than, than this life. And that search for satisfaction and longing for something permanent that we feel in this world is actually hidden grace in the curse in order to, to lead us to the person of Jesus Christ, who, who fulfills all our longings and it is the only permanent and stable thing that that we have in life. Most people pretend. They pretend that life is not what it really is. And they try to mask it with pursuits or, or other things to, to distract them. And Solomon will not allow that. He's a sinner too. And he knows unless he takes us on this this journey, we, we won't look. And so he forces us to look at the realities of life so we'll end up fi- uh, hoping in God alone. And while it is an unpleasant ride, it, it leads us to the wisdom that we need to live in a, in a cursed world. And, and so now that he's gotten us used to the water in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's going to teach us how to swim. And that's the theme of our section in chapters 3 through through 5. We're going to begin chapter 4 this morning. We're going to reach the shore one day. It's going to be a golden shore, and that's going to be a wonderful day. But until then, God God's not going to let us sink. If we're going to navigate the waters of the curse as believers, Solomon says we need particular wisdom, and that, that's his goal. And, and he started with the big picture in chapter 3, God's grip of time, and then he starts 
addressing specific areas of life where we feel frustration and futility in, in this in this crooked world. And what you need most of all is is wisdom in the macro, a right view of, of God's sovereignty. Without a good and sovereign God in control, there's no hope at all. But you also need to attach to that truth specific tools as you face particular frustrations in life. And Solomon teaches us how to deal with these perplexing and frustrating areas of the curse that seem to contradict this idea that there's a good and sovereign God in in control. And, And he starts with injustice and death. And that's what we saw last time. And today, he's going to bring us face to face with one more. And that's oppression and abuse. He's going to cover ten areas in in total between chapter 3 and chapter 5. And and I warn you that that after giving us some some oxygen at the beginning of chapter 3, he's going to test our lungs again. He's going to cover the remaining seven vexations, these seven frustrations, without giving you the tool until the very end, until the very end of covering these seven. But he knows that, believes that you're more used to the water now, and so it won't be as shocking to your system as it was in chapter 1 and 2. But the reality of the curse is still chilly, isn't it? And today, that chill comes from abuse. God makes us look it straight in the face, and then the natural feelings of hopelessness that, that result. Do you feel, or how do you feel, when you're forced to look at oppression politically, can you linger long with the, the stories about systematic child abuse? We, we prefer stories about uh, who's dumping who in Hollywood or what, how our team has, has done. Do, do you enjoy time in the Holocaust Museum? It's one of the places that I go in Israel that, that I don't enjoy, but you must go there. What about whenever you're a teacher and you find bruises or burns on a kindergartner? You read about it all the time. You might be here this morning and you might be facing it. Real abuse, wicked oppression, tyrannical authorities are present in this fallen world. And these are things that bring great grief to human beings. It can be on a universal scale like, like genocide. It can be on an individual scale like an abusive spouse. Last week, we saw God designed authority for our good, but because of the fall, injustice can be there and abuse can also be there by rulers over people, by husbands over wives, mothers over children, pastors over flocks. Any place there is authority with sinful people, there's an opportunity for oppression. And if you doubt that this is a big deal, Solomon deals with this topic three times out of the ten vexations that he lists. Three out of ten have to do with with this topic. One of the most prevalent frustrations that you will face or anyone will face in a fallen world is this. And so Solomon deals with injustice in the courts. He deals with oppressive authority in our passage today. And then he's going to deal with political corruption at the end of of chapter 5. And so after saying God has a grip on time and He's working a plan, Solomon now deals with another area that doesn't seem to add up for us. And he's going to make 
two bitter observations about abuse. The first one is comes from a, a grieving gaze at the oppressed in verse 1. And then in verse 2 and 3, there's a consoling conclusion about oppression. Solomon looks at the oppressed, and then he looks at the life of oppression without God. And he starts with this grieving glance of the oppressed. Look, if you would, at Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. He says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. In a cursed world, Solomon sees the presence of oppression, he sees the tears of the oppressed, and he sees the power of the oppressor. He says oppression brings sorrow, tears, a feeling of helplessness, there's no comfort, there's no comfort, and ultimately it brings hopelessness, even suicidal longings, wishing that they were dead or, or never born. And once again, Ecclesiastes meets us right where we live, doesn't it? I mean, could this be written thousands of years ago, or could it be written today? The Me Too movement, social justice, all of those things are responses and counter-responses, and they're all human attempts to stop what Solomon talks about here in the book of Ecclesiastes, and none of them will ever solve the problem. Solomon starts with the presence of oppression in a fallen world. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, I returned and considered, I looked at all, I looked again at all the acts. He surveys the, the brutalities of those who are in power that, that are perpetrated under the, under the sun. And, and he says that there are too many to count. That's the idea here. I considered all the oppression that's done under the sun. I looked again at all of the acts, all of the brutalities. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that, that abuse happens in this world. I hope I don't have to tell you that the Bible condemns it. Abuse is an act against God. Proverbs 14.31, the, the one who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. And the Bible condemns all forms of abuse. Look at Exodus 22. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. This is part of God's law to Israel. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like to be oppressed. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you afflict him at all. And if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled. And I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God says, if you abuse those who are helpless, I will visit judgment on you. And you'll take their place. The, the tables will be turned. Your wives and children will become helpless. Look at Malachi 3, verse Five. Then I drew near to you for, for judgment, and I will be, be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and watch this, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan. God condemns oppression 
and says that that can even be what you pay your workers. And he places those people in the same category as sorcerers and adulterers. And if pure religion and undefiled in the, in the sight of God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress, as James 1 says, what do you think oppression in the sight of God is of, of those, those same people? The Bible describes many types of oppression that's, that's in the world or abuse. People by a king in Proverbs 28.16, a servant by his master in Deuteronomy 24, the poor by the rich in Proverbs 22, citizens by bureaucrats in Ecclesiastes 5. We're coming to that one. Even the poor by the, by the poor. There's the fatherless, the widow, the alien, those subjected to high interest rates, corrupt weights and measures, oppressive estate agents, all of these are, are condemned by, by Scripture. And yet Michael Eaton said, when it comes to oppression under the sun, the smallest coffins are the heaviest to carry. The abuse of children is the hardest to take. Isn't that the hardest to take? When Solomon looks at the world, he sees enough injustice to make the angels weep. And when it happens, it brings comfortless pain. Look at what else he says here in verse 1. Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Look, behold, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. As he's looking... He's surveying all of the abuses all over the world under the sun. He's thinking about all of them. He zooms in and he beholds the tears of those who, who are being, being oppressed. And these aren't just tears. They're comfortless tears, the Bible says. Tears that come from no hope of, of anything ever, ever changing. I cry, you cry, but the tears of the oppressed are, are endless tears, comfortless tears. It's one of the differences between someone being subjected to periodic sinful anger and real systematic abuse. There's no hope of anything changing in real systematic abuse. Abuse doesn't stop and there's no way out. And Solomon accentuates the pain by repeating the, the word, the Hebrew word for oppressed, three times. He says, I saw acts of oppression, the tears of the oppressed, and power with the oppressors. He uses the whole for the, for the dramatic effect. Look. And he repeats, there's no comfort twice. Solomon knows that we can't look at, at exploitation long, so he forces us to, to look at it and its, and its results. His response when he sees oppression is the response that, that you have. He, his heart is broken. He beholds their tears. Can you see the tears of a woman who's lived with a man for 30 years, who's used her for his own benefit from the first day that they were married? She's never felt loved, only used. And whenever she's brought it up, she gets smacked down, sometimes literally. What about a child who has a mother who cares only about herself and, and her peace and they get punched whenever they, they do something that annoys her and they never know what that will be or when that, that will be? I, I've seen those tears. It's one of the hardest parts of pastoral counseling. And Solomon says you have to look. 
Derek Kidner said, if Solomon's gloom strikes you as excessive, we may need to ask whether our more cheerful outlook springs from hope and not complacency. If you insulate yourself from hurting people, you'll be callous to their pain. But if you pursue the weak and the hurting, as the Lord Jesus commands, then then you'll have well-trained eyes to see their pain. Then Solomon is training our eyes and training his own eyes. Let me illustrate what I mean. What happens when when you sit in the pew and someone comes and gives a short-term mission trip presentation? And you've been in church for a long period of time, and one of the things that you're tempted to think is... Here's another missionary presentation with slideshow about every place that everybody's been. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever thought of that, right? Now, reverse that. What happens if you're the person that goes on the mission trip to Ecuador and you actually are there delousing the children that are picking through the trash to eat? What what happens to your perspective? How do you feel whenever you come back from that? Well, it creates a thankfulness in your own heart, first of all for what you have, but you develop a desire to change their situation and help them, right? But if you can't see their pain, it may be because you're insulating yourself, because they're there, they're all over the world. Listen, I understand, and like you, I hate democratic socialism, and and I understand all the ignorant arrogance of people like AOC and all of those others, but don't stumble over them and attack the wrong thing. The rich abusing the poor, corporate oppression, sexual harassment, police brutality are real and they're reasons to fight against injustice. Don't let all the trigger warnings and political pandering make you cynical and complacent as a believer. That's Satan's goal. The problem in our society is the loudest voices have corrupt methodology and no real solutions. And we focus on them instead of the issues. We'll get lost. These are godless people, and so they have no solution others, uh, other than godless solutions. Like turning the table so the oppressor gets oppressed. That, that works to, to rid the world of abuse, doesn't it? That's why communism and socialism and feminism doesn't work and never will. Just, it just simply multiplies oppression. The problem is once the revolutionaries take control, they become the oppressors. <laughs> and the more control the reformer wields, the more it tends to... To tyranny, it just swaps the position of power. That never changes the heart. I mean, do you really think if Bernie or whoever it is gets in authority that, that sort of somehow they're going to be kind and gentle rulers who treat everyone fairly? I mean, do you really believe that? You don't have to guess. Just, just watch their tactics now. Or look anywhere their flawed systems have taken hold. Do you see any poor communist dictators around the world? Kim Jong-un is is not a skinny guy, is he? If you think it's just the the secularists or the people outside of God that fall to it, Stephen mentioned the Reformation. What happened when the Protestant reformers took over who were burned at the stake by the Catholics? They drowned the Anabaptists. That's what they did. Oppression comes from sin, and sin is part of the curse. You say, do you have a better idea? Yes, I do. The Bible. The book of Micah outlines it. God's told us what to do. He has told you, O man, what is good. 
What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Love mercy from the heart. And that will lead to doing justly and walking or living humbly before God. And that only comes from a converted heart. The answer to abuse and oppression is not a political system or reversing roles, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can turn an oppressor's heart into a servant's heart. It's the only way that it's, that it's possible. But we must look at the results of sin, so we'll long for that salvation to come, so we'll share that truth with, with others. And so Solomon is training his eyes, and he sees their tears, and then he sees why they're... They're weeping at the end of verse 1. He says, And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. He, he repeats that. They cry, and there's no comfort. And on the side of their abusers is power, and they have no comfort. He sees the power of the oppressor, observes oppression, there's no one to take up their cause, there's not even seen someone to comfort them, and then he sees the advantage lies with the the oppressor. He says power literally is in the hand of the of the oppressor. That means the power came from their hand, and it also can mean they had a free hand to do as they as they please. It's the idea of a slave who is literally under the, the absolute power of their, of their master. To sell off the children, to kill them, to beat them, to do whatever they wanted to do. You're supposed to see this, what comes from the oppressor's hand, in contrast with what comes from God's hand. Look if you would at chapter 2, verse 26. Sit back there just for a minute, let me give you a breath of air. It's heavy, isn't it? 2.26. Look at what comes from God's hand. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who's good in his sight. But to the sinner, He gives the work of gathering and collecting that He may give to those who's good before God. To a person who is good in his sight, from God's hand comes wisdom and knowledge and joy. God gives good gifts from His hand. But all that comes from an oppressor is abuse and no comfort at all. Oppression. And he repeats the statement about lacking comfort. One of the most hopeless parts about abuse and oppression is the very place you're supposed to find protection, you often get more abuse. From the very parent that is supposed to protect you, as a child, you find oppression from the very police that are supposed to protect you, from the very pastor that's supposed to protect you, from the very husband that's supposed to protect you, from the very government that's supposed to protect you, from them. That's where the abuse comes from. That is a hopeless, hopeless feeling. The authorities protect the abuser, or they are the, the power themselves. Solomon does something here that's masterful. He's up to his old tricks. He makes us feel 
what the oppressed feel so we can relate to them. Remember that's how he did in chapter 2? Drags us under the water so we'll feel the despair of what's the use to living if all of this is. He's dragging you down. He's dragging you face to face with oppression to make you feel what, what, what they feel. And he says what the abused feel is helpless. Sadness that turns to anger. And that's what you feel when you take these steps downward with Solomon. You look around and you see abuse. You see their hopeless tears. Now you see the very place justice should come. There's corruption. Or they're the oppressors. And you scream, that's not right. But many times you can't do anything about it, can you? That's helpless anger. It's what you feel whenever you read about systematic child abuse. The the feeling of helpless anger that goes on in your heart in the response to domestic violence. Or when you read about the, the Chinese government imprisoning Christians that are just trying to worship Jesus. When you face these things, there are two emotions that come. There's anger at the evil you see. Righteous indignation. You, you should feel that. But then there's also the feeling of helplessness to do anything about it. Anger and impotence. Mixed together is how we often feel about abuse, isn't it? Solomon makes you look at these things so we'll taste what the oppressed feels. And then he's honest about the, the feelings that, that come. You think it would be better if they were never born, if their situation doesn't change in, in this life. Look at verse 2. Here's the consoling conclusion about oppression. This is not a good consoling, but the only one people have without God. Look at verse 2. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who, who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who's never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Abuse empties purpose in life. If there is no way for justice, it leads to hopelessness and finally giving up on living. And so now Solomon congratulates the dead for being better off than the abused. He says, if this is all there is, death offers a better alternative to, to living. And this is his conclusion when he limits his gaze to life under the sun. Again, Michael Eaton said, the horizontal life has no smile beneath the tyrant's frown. If this is the only place that you're looking, there's no hope for someone who's in that condition. Verse 2 is the first of several better than Proverbs. We're coming up on these statements in Ecclesiastes where there's better than Proverbs. These Proverbs take the first thing and compare it to, to, to the next. And that's what he's doing in verse 2. He's comparing the dead who are already dead with the living who are still alive. He's comparing one thing to the other. But, but the comparison has fixed boundaries, and that's what's important to remember here. It's important to understand Solomon is not drawing any conclusion beyond that, beyond these fixed boundaries of life under the sun, or you're going to misinterpret what he's saying. He's saying if there are two choices, a life of endless oppression with no relief or death, it's better to be dead and, and out of oppression than, than to live like that. And that's how utterly hopeless 
abused people feel. In verse 3, he goes a step further to emphasize it. Look at verse 3 again. The better off than, than both of them is the one who has never existed, who's never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Better yet, Solomon says, if that's all they have, if this life is all there is, if there is no God, there is no justice, there is no judgment, then it would have been better if they never existed. They never, they never lived. <clears throat> They'd never seen it. They never experienced the curse. Haven't you felt that way? I think you have. When you think about the, the evil of abortion or the, the selling of fetal tissue for profit or, or whatever it is, you, you get angry and you do what you can. you like me. You show up to Planned Parenthood in, in Roanoke and, and you pray and you... Then you realize that the dent that you make in Planned Parenthood in Roanoke is just filled up with more murders in Planned Parenthood in New York City. You realize that you're fighting an evil system, whether it's Planned Parenthood or communism with forced abortions, and it feels hopeless to solve, doesn't it? What's one of the ways that we comfort our hearts when we feel that way? We remind ourselves that God has populated heaven with 60 million babies who never tasted a sin-cursed world. It's one of the ways that we comfort ourselves, isn't it? Better would have been for them to come into the world and not been murdered and been raised for Jesus Christ and used for His kingdom. But it's a secondary comfort that those who suffer this fate enter glory without breathing the bitter air of the world. They went straight to heaven from the womb. Isn't that a measure of comfort? That's what Solomon's doing here. Be better for them to go straight to heaven, never been born. And just so you don't think that he's alone, Job and Jeremiah did the same thing. Look at Job 3. Remember one of those other wisdom books? Job afterward opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let that day perish on which I was born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. And under the oppression of Pashur the priest, Jeremiah says, Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow, so that my days have been spent in shame? The Bible's realistic, isn't it? These are real feelings that people have, that you have. There's nothing skeptical or cynical about what Solomon is saying here. It's the logical conclusion Conclusion when he looks oppression in the face. If there is no heaven and only life on the earth and an abusive existence with all power in the hand of the abuser, then death seems better. And that's where some people end their lives. Thankfully, Solomon doesn't stop there. <laughs> he doesn't stop only with the curse. He says there is a heaven and a God who will judge but sadly, some people don't know Jesus Christ and they do stop with the curse. And that's where you and I come in to point them to the hope that Christ alone offers. Solomon is not advocating cynicism or suicide here. He's just got done saying death is where the oppressed will find relief and the oppressor will find justice. So he said, long for that day when God will judge. But others who have no hope in God just want it to end 
And that's the plight of those who face oppression without God. And you say, Pastor, I see that's what it says, but I'm, I'm looking for the wisdom here. Where's the tool? I'm looking at verse 1 through 3, and I, I, don't, I don't see it. Well, it's because it's not here, not in these verses. Solomon goes through all seven, as I told you, of these frustrations before he gives you wisdom at the end, but he's, he's already given you the ultimate answer just a few verses before. And then he ends the entire book of Ecclesiastes with the same truth. The ultimate answer to oppression is God's judgment. Look back at verse 17. Watch what Solomon does here. Why this topic is so heavy. It's so heavy, he brings the solution before he he deals with the problem, before he looks. Verse 17, I said in my heart, chapter 3, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. Talking about justice and, and judgment. Solomon gives that in the face of, of justice. He starts in verse 16. He says, I saw under the sun. I saw injustice, and that's bad. I, I, I remind myself that, that when I see in the place of righteousness there is iniquity, I say in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time for every purpose, including, including judgment. But abuse is so heart-wrenching, oppression is so heart-wrenching, Solomon needs that truth before he ever gets to the topic. He reminds us of that before he ever brings us face-to-face with this, with this reality. You who are living where no one knows what you're going through, Solomon says, take heart, God will avenge you. And listen to how he ends the whole book. Here's the shore, the atmosphere. That's just a, that's just a puff of oxygen. What's the golden shore? Ecclesiastes 12, the conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person, including abusers. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's God's world that is, that's coming. And that's not the first place you go, the last place you rest. This is applied when there's absolutely nothing else that can be done, when the dictator has all authority, when you're in the concentration camp and you can't escape the abuse, the ultimate answer is trust God who will judge and follow the example of Jesus Christ. Do you think Jesus was abused? What did He do? He didn't sin in response. He didn't utter threats or revile. He entrusted Himself to God who judges righteously. Look at First Peter 2. What's Peter's answer to the oppressed? The Christians under Nero? For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself. He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. God will judge. And without that truth, you're going to go insane in an evil world. Or you're going to try some, some godless attempt to, re, to turn the tables 
and then actually become the, the oppressor. You say, but is there anything that I can do? Is there anything we should be doing while we, while we wait on that day? Actually, there is. You can do some other things while you're waiting on that day. I think that there are four of them. Let me give you these four. How do you fight against, biblically, against oppression or abuse? What do you do? Just hope that God will work it out in the end? No, that's the hope for someone who can't do anything. Their, their tears are there because the power is in the hands of the oppressor. First thing, promote authority. One being, the caveat that biblical authority, obviously. I mean by that, biblical authority. That may sound counterintuitive after what we just read, but if it does, it reveals that you're putting the blame in the wrong place. You're, not, you're putting the blame in the authority and not in the one who, who wields it poorly. The problem is not authority. The problem is oppression by evil people in authority. Isn't that what Solomon says? In the hand of the oppressor is power. It's in his hand, an evil person. You see, if, if you think the problem is authority itself, it actually removes one of the restraining tools that God has given mankind to deal with evil. If you demonize justice or police, guess what happens? There's more injustice that takes place. If you tear down the concept of authority, then, then you have no hope whatsoever. It's one of the best things we have in a fallen world. You see, we can, we can deal with the fact that, there, that there's an authority structure, but those operating it are corrupt. What we can't deal with is there's no authority whatsoever. There's anarchy. There's, 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 there's nothing. There's no right and wrong. No, no one to be, to be held accountable and no one to hold anybody accountable. That, that's... That's abuse in and of itself. There's no hope for justice, not here, not in the future. Teaching children that authority is bad or that everyone is equal will not remove oppression. It creates more oppression. Because then they think the very structure that is meant to bring stability is the problem. And they have no tool to deal with it or any concept of a coming judgment. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that includes varying degrees, promoting varying degrees of authority. You promote authority, including varying degrees of authority. What, what do I mean by that? What do you do with 1 Peter 3 that says, Wives, submit to your husbands, even the disobedient ones, when that husband is beating her? What do you do then? You don't reject authority. You submit to a higher one. You promote degrees of authority. First of all, you get out of there and you call the police because God's established a higher authority for you to submit to. You see, God's established authority, but He's also established levels of authority. They're not all equal, and therefore we don't submit to them equally. And we only submit to authority as unto the Lord. Husbands, submit to your wives as unto the Lord. Submit to the authorities for the Lord's sake. And so at times... Because of the fall, you have to go to a higher authority. And when you do, you're not violating God at all. Don't think that you are violating God's authority by going to the police if you have an abusive spouse. That's not God violating God's authority at all. That's actually promoting God's authority. 
Husbands are not the actual authority. Mothers are not the ultimate authority. Government is not the ultimate authority. God is. And that's the part, the hard part, when you're trying to discern when to call on a higher authority versus submit to the one that's over you. In general, submit to the ones that's over you. That's why God's given you shepherds for your soul and elders to help you make those discerning situations. Submit to those who are over you. There's protection under authority. But if you find that there is continual oppression and there is no relief, then go to a higher authority. Let me give you the second one. You emphasize character for those who are in authority, whether that be husbands or mothers or pastors or politicians. The problem is not having leaders. The issue is sinful people in those positions. And that's made even worse by those who are untested being placed there to begin with. You know what is terrifying? A 25-year-old in a position of authority. Isn't that terrifying? I mean, I understand there are exceptions to that. That's terrifying. Because they've not tasted enough of life to even know how to tie their shoes, much less how to lead people. Abuse in the church is, is not because we don't have women preaching. It's, it's because we've done down the qualifications for ministry so low that anyone is qualified. And then we wonder why they fall. Because they haven't even looked at, we haven't even looked at 1 Timothy 3 or Titus. Emphasize character for those who are in leadership. Remove those who lack that character from leadership. Solomon gave us this one. Number three, look at tears. Look at tears. What do you do while you're waiting on God's ultimate judgment? What do you do in trying to, to blunt some of the edge of, of oppression? You look at tears. You remind yourself of the tears of the oppressed. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't insulate yourself from them. It'll keep you tender-hearted in the right way. How did Jesus respond when He encountered the crookedness of the world? He flew to the, to the highest mountain in Galilee and gathered His followers in a little cloister there and said, we will not go amongst the sinners. Not what He did, did He? He wept at the pain of Lazarus' death. He groaned over the deaf man's condition in Mark 7. He sighed at the Pharisees' hard-hearted unbelief whenever he, when He saw it. You can do this by finding a way to, to relieve the plight of others. That's how you look at tears. Go be in uncomfortable places. Find a way to help women who are in domestic abuse. Foster children. Support TES that trains men to turn cities upside down with the gospel. Do something that puts you in contact with people whose cheeks are wet. But don't think that you're going to fix it. It won't happen here. Do what you can, but ultimately, it'll be here until Jesus returns. And when He comes, there's judgment, so proclaim it. Fourth thing you can do is proclaim God's judgment. The oppressed need relief. And you should relieve that and give them 
Whatever justice is, is possible. But making a God who doesn't judge and has no categories for sin doesn't relieve them. It oppresses them further. Because a God who doesn't see sin and who doesn't do anything about sin and doesn't call sin what it is doesn't judge, including their oppressor. You understand? Proclaim judgment. At the Lord's tribunal, He will judge all oppressors and believing that and proclaiming that helps people fear and helps people have hope (laughs) that there is a day when that person that did that to me will face judgment if they don't come to Jesus Christ now. What do you think God's going to do to you or anyone else if you have taken His authority, the position that He delegated to you, and abused others in His name? What do you think God's going to do to you on that day? I tell you, He's going to meet you in judgment and you're going to find out what power really is on that day. Finally, preach the gospel, share the gospel. The only answer to oppression in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can change a heart. It's the only thing that can give hope to an abused heart. What advantage does a Christian have who faces abuse? Do Christians, do God's people face abuse? Yeah, just look at Israel, right? 430 years. What advantage do God's people have in a world where there is oppression or there is abuse? Well, I'll tell you the advantage. Well, others are without comfort. We have the comforter living inside of us. And we can say like Hebrews 13, 6, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the power of the gospel. The worst thing that an oppressor can do is send you to heaven. That's the power of faith. There's only one way to face this life. That's faith in a sovereign and good God who promised that He'll make all things beautiful in His time, bring judgment and justice and one that promises something more than this life. Faith in Him is the only way to look at the curse and deal with the curse, including abuse. So bow your heads.